Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me today. We are talking about how we resolve and close cases in New York. And today's webinar topic is permanent disability and settlement. So we're going to talk about how we evaluate cases for exposure, how we price that out, uh, and then what kinds of uh, methods are available to us under the New York workers' compensation law uh, to close or resolve cases that may have permanent residual impairment. So today our topics are going to be um, uh, talking about exposure evaluation. We're going to talk about different settlement types. And it's my goal today as we go through this presentation to explain how we evaluate cases for exposure the different ways you can close cases. And then, uh, of course, my goal is to answer as many questions as possible. So uh, if you're attending today live, I'm hoping it's because you've got some great questions about this topic. I'm gonna introduce the topic. I'm gonna talk about how we as defense counsel help you to both determine what the exposure should be in a case and then also, of course, to figure out uh, really how much the case is worth. Uh, I'm going to try to put this in a broader context and make sure that everyone understands all the choices they have in uh, resolving a New York workers' compensation case. Now, our thought, our theory of New York workers' compensation is always to get in control of that workers' compensation case. That's the best way to reduce your exposure. Um, in addition, we always, uh, you know, push our our clients. Hey, can we do a return to work program? Can we get the employee back to the workplace? Uh, as an employer, as a carrier, as a stakeholder in this system, it's about being decisive so that we can push these cases to closure early. Um, I'm here to help explain the judicial system and the workers' compensation system and how uh, that does impact overall case exposure. And of course, our overall goal as a defense firm is to get these cases to close in a practical way. So if you're here today, uh, those are the topics we're gonna just talk about in the context of valuing cases for overall exposure. And I put a couple handouts um, in today's presentation. Uh, the handouts that I've put in, uh, you can download them now. The first one is up on our screen here. It's my New York Workers' Compensation Law Handbook, the 2023 edition. If you're listening at home, uh, or uh, you're listening to this on playback, you can always go download that handbook from loisllc.com forward slash publications. I also want to remember, remind everyone that all of our webinars and our training are also available uh, by way of podcast. So if you prefer to listen to this in a podcast format, which is a lot easier, for example, when you're in a car, loisllc.com podcasts. And we are producing five podcasts a month on different topics in New York, New Jersey, workers' compensation law. Uh, if this stuff seems basic to you and you've got it, I would really recommend you check out my partner, Christian Cisson's podcast, which is called Third Fridays. It's released, no surprise, on the third Friday of each month. Um, that um, webinar, that I'm sorry, that podcast that he uh, does every month really tries to tackle higher level sort of issues or topics or discussions in workers' compensation. And that's also available at loisllc.com. Uh, forward slash podcasts, or really any place that you can get a podcast, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, all that stuff, it's all there for you. Um, let me quickly remind everybody about our vision, our mission, and our values as a law firm. 
we are the go-to firm for the top employers and carriers nationally. And my goal as a business owner is to make Lois Law Firm the very best workers' compensation defense firm to work for. Our mission is client-focused. Our mission is about taking control and staying in control of these cases and helping you drive your case to closure. And what's unique and different about Lois Law Firm, our biggest differentiating factor, is that we are a values-based law firm. Um, we are standards-focused and metrics-focused, but we really live and role model these values that we think are so important. Being creative, being a problem solver, collaborating with our clients to come up with a unique solution. Not every comp case is the same, and they're going to require some unique solutions. Next, being an advocate. Um, we're not here to just go through the motions. We're here to take a position. I want to try to win cases, not just simply not lose cases. Being um, a professional, and that means towards opposing parties, towards the courts, towards each other, and certainly towards our clients and maintaining a normal work-life balance. That's really important for us. And the last thing is about being responsive. We are the most responsive defense firm you've ever worked with, and that's our goal. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, maximum medical improvement, and then I'm going to start talking really about how we get to case exposure evaluations and the factors you should be considering. And of course, I'm going to talk about Section 32s because those are my favorite things in the world. That's a lump sum dismissal. So to put some sort of context around all of this, I want to give sort of a huge 30,000-foot overview of how you do case exposure evaluation in this jurisdiction. I mean, the first part is identifying the body part or the condition that's going to lead to the temporary or permanent impairment. Uh, and once you've done that, you've thought to yourself, okay, this is a finger case, this is an eye case, this is a hand case, this is a low back case. Then you know which of the two systems for evaluating impairment that are gonna be applied. And there's only two systems. One's called scheduled loss of use, and the other one in New York is called loss of wage earning capacity. These are really the two pathways that a case goes into to help determine what the exposure is going to be. And it's one or the other, and sometimes it can be both because you could have a scheduled loss of use body part, hand, finger, foot, or toe, and a loss of wage earning body part, uh, for example, a psychiatric condition. So we're going to consider which of these two schemes or um, sort of pathways apply to evaluating overall exposure. And then we're going to think, okay, what's the rate that this award's going to be paid at, right? What's the weekly rate? What is this going to come out to be in terms of a award? Then we're going to think about factors that are going to reduce our exposure. Things like, is there an opportunity in this case for risk transfer? Is there an opportunity in this case for an apportionment? And then finally, I'm going to think about what discount am I entitled to? And when I say discount, I mean, how are we going to reduce that dollar value because, for example, we're going to pay this settlement out all as a lump sum. We're going to pay it out now. And we know most claimants would rather have $200,000 now versus $250,000 paid out over the next eight years. Okay? And so as we go through this sort of evaluation, every case we're going to start thinking, we start by thinking, what's the body part? What's the condition? What's the injury? What's the illness? Then we think, okay, how are we going to evaluate that slew or LWEC? Then we think, okay, what's that? What's the rate or the award that I'm going to come up to? That's the that's the dollars. What is my discount opportunities? You know, how am I going to reduce that exposure? So the first step is always let's identify that body part or condition. Step two, what's the percentage of impairment? That's going to be expressed always as a percentage. You're going to use one of these two systems and sometimes both. 
the scheduled loss of use system or the loss of wage earning capacity system to come up with a percentage. Next step is, okay, how much money are we paying this person? And then do we have a chance to reduce that money because there's an opportunity for risk transfer? And then finally, can I further reduce that or is there another opportunity for a discount because of the time value of money to this specific uh, employee, right? So that's really the step, the, the steps that we go through. Um, and I wanted to start off this presentation by talking about this general um, sort of framework because everything I'm going to talk about from here forward is really going to be just sort of applying this evaluation framework uh, and I'm going to go into the detail of how we actually do it. Now cases close in New York on uh, very specific ways. Um, there's really four main ways they close. First is by way of discontinuance or dismissal. Okay, Relatively rare in this jurisdiction but not unheard of. Uh, lots of opportunities for the case to be dismissed, for example, in a controverted circumstance because they're not our employee. There's no jurisdiction. There's a lack of notice. You have a great legal defense. Or sometimes they get discontinued uh, because the uh, claimant's no longer pursuing the case. So those are all opportunities for the case to be reduced or, or just go away. The next choice you have always is trial to judgment. You don't have to settle in this jurisdiction. Right? There's a judge there, and if we say, judge, uh, we can't reach a settlement, you can try it, the case to judicial decision. Um, next, we have an opportunity to do something called a stipulation. Okay, The stipulation is saying, judge, uh, the parties have agreed. Here is the scheduled loss of use. It's 50% of the statutory right index finger, uh, and we've agreed to this, and we're going to present the judge with the settlement stipulation documents, and the judge will generally approve those. Now, the challenge with the stipulation, of course, is that it is reopenable. Uh, under our statute, section 123, the claimant can come forward and reopen that case. And the last type of closure, the last opportunity to bucket, I should say, that you can put a case in to try to close it, is by way of section 32, and that is a lump sum dismissal. Uh, here's the money, go away, don't come back. And you can be very selective about your section 32 opportunity in a case. You could say, we're only going to resolve the indemnity component of this case. We're only going to resolve the medical treatment component of this case. Uh, so you can be uh, pretty careful and nuanced about how you deploy a Section 32. You can also, of course, do both. You can do a scheduled loss of use. So you could say this person is getting 50% of the statutory hand for injuries to their hand, and then do a Section 32 or a lump sum dismissal on just one aspect of the case. Perhaps they brought a companion psychiatric claim or they've claimed a consequential psychiatric claim, you could say, all right, we're going to section 32 out that body part. And the reason for that, of course, would be so that it can never come back and it's truly closed. Now, these closure types are going to give us different sort of choices and have different sort of risks or opportunities for us. So remember, uh, a judge can order, you remember, you can get to a judgment, a section 15 closure. That's a stipulation and that would be for a classified injury. Uh, it could be either a scheduled loss of use or a loss of wage earning capacity. A judge can never order you to do a Section 32. Um, that's outside of their jurisdiction to do that. Whether the case resolves by way of a stipulation or a judgment or a Section 32, though, the judge has to approve it in this jurisdiction. A Section 32 cannot be reopened, and because it cannot be reopened, that's why you have that Medicare secondary payer concern. Also, a Section 32 is not subject to being uh, required for, to make a deposit into the aggregate trust fund. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about aggregate trust fund next month in our July webinar, 
Um, and no matter what type of settlement you, you do, you can always do a release and resignation. That's something you can do separately. Although I would be very cautious about doing that in a circumstance where the case is not full and final closed and the claimant no longer works for you. So those are just a quick comparison table of the different types of resolutions and how they sort of impact your rights going forward. Now, let's move to the next topic, which is maximum medical improvement. We've all known this, uh, what maximum medical improvement is, called MMI. It's where the person has reached a curative plateau. Um, generally speaking, um, the judge of compensation should not be um, giving you an opinion in regards to permanent impairment unless maximum medical improvement has been reached for all body parts, which are going to be the subject of that judgment or decision. Interestingly, the disability duration guidelines, which are the guidelines that uh, we utilize in New York to assess the amount of permanent residual disability, they have statements in there that say things like maximum medical improvement cannot be determined prior to six months from the date of injury. And they also says unless agreed to by the party. So the fact that the accident happened two months ago and the person maybe isn't still in active medical care, it doesn't mean you can't between the parties agree uh, that maximum medical improvement has been reached. And in that reason, I'm saying, or I'm giving you as a justification why you could do a section 32 really at any time in a case. Now, generally speaking, you should be expecting maximum medical improvement to re be reached within a couple of years of the injury. We should be ready to move on to that permanency if you're not gonna do a section 32. Now, claimants uh, have lots of ways of trying to defeat maximum medical improvement. And we talked about it two webinars ago or two months ago. Uh, those ways are to say, wait a second, I need a new surgery, or of course, to try to bring in additional sites, right? Because they really don't want to move on from that paying them temporary disability stage of the case. They really don't want to move on. And so they will come forward and say things like, well, judge, I'm not really at maximum medical improvement because maybe someday I'm going to need a surgery. There is now direction from um, the Workers' Compensation Board itself that says not only is there, uh, does, does the claimant who's seeking to avoid a finding of maximum medical improvement, not only do they have to um, you know, raise this, but they also have to show that whatever that surgery or the treatment that they're alleging they need, it's actually scheduled and that they would actually undergo that uh, treatment if it was actually offered to them. The other challenge we have when we're trying to close cases is uh, we get the claimant to reach maximum medical improvement for their original injury or body part, and we're ready to settle the case, and we start talking settlement, and they go back to their doctor, and they start bringing in new additional body parts. Uh, they're doing that on purpose to try to delay and prolong their period of temporary total disability or increase it, or just simply avoid a finding of maximum medical improvement. And this is where you've got to get uh, really aggressive and be a strong advocate and make sure that doesn't happen. It's one of the most frustrating things that I see where the claimant has, we're, out, we're at the end of treatment, you know, the doctor has said to them something like, I'm going to release you from care the next visit, or I'm going to release you back to work at the next visit. And what do they do? Uh, they go and they switch doctors and they start bringing in new body parts and trying to claim, oh, now they have a psychiatric condition or something else to try to prolong it. Okay, so we've got to be really uh, pushed back against the inclusion of additional sites. And our goal really is to get the case to a place where we can start either assessing whether the case is going to be resolved by way of scheduled loss of use or of loss of wage earning capacity evaluation, right? Uh, what is the body part? What is the injury to it? And what of the two systems are we going to apply? Now, the first system is called scheduled loss of use. 
And it's a really simple system. It literally lists out all the body parts that it covers and gives a maximum number of weeks for each body part. So for example, the arm for a shoulder injury, for example, a shoulder injury would be compensated in terms of the statutory arm under a scheduled loss of use. And the maximum number of weeks is 312 weeks. And this chart uh, was published by the legislature more than 100 years ago. It still applies today. And these are the maximum numbers of weeks of compensation that the claimant can receive for each of these enumerated body parts. And this is why it's called a schedule of disability, because they're all listed out there. The litigation path is pretty simple for these types of cases. Uh, both sides will go and get impairment ratings from uh, physicians of their own choosing. The claimant will typically use their treating physician who will fill out a form called a C-4.3 form, which will give their overall impairment rating. We will generally retain a medical expert who will do the same exact uh, objective testing uh, that the claimant's physician does. They often come to radically different opinions in regards to overall impairment. That usually necessitates the taking of some testimony. Ultimately, if the case cannot be settled, the judge is allowed to make a determination as to which of the uh, medical opinions is more credible and uh, make a finding of overall impairment. Now the doctors are supposed to use the same materials um, that I've put a copy of in today's webinar handouts. That's the impairment guidelines that I provide you a copy of. And these guidelines explain that for every uh, loss of range of motion or loss of strength, uh, the doctor is supposed to come up with an overall percentage of disability. And the way they determine this is to essentially put the person through active and passive ranges of motion. You know, they're supposed to use a device called a goinometer and determine what is the actual loss of range of motion, uh, are there any special considerations, and utilize that as a way of determining the percentage of disability. Now, this does seem to me to be quite objective and two doctors evaluating the same patient should come to the exact same conclusions. Uh, but of course, this is a um, uh, you know uh, adversarial system and so they rarely do. Uh, generally speaking, these two um, findings uh, will be um, used to determine the overall schedule loss of use. Whether the judge rules by way of judgment or we simply settle the case or compromise, that's really up to the individual case and client preference, uh, but ultimately that's how these matters resolve. Now, New York also has one other little strange thing called protracted healing period, which says if the claimant's injury takes them longer to recover from than was um, established by the legislature, again, back in uh, 1911, then uh, they are entitled to additional weeks of compensation. And if you actually read the statute, it says the average person uh, should recover from an injury to their arm in 32 weeks. So if the amount of temporary total disability paid to the claimant exceeds 32 weeks, then they have additional weeks of uh, benefit added to their award, and this is called a protracted healing period award. Um, interestingly, the statute doesn't distinguish between someone who has a, a complete rotator cuff tear uh, and has a very significant injury to their arm, or somebody who has a minor laceration. Uh, so that 32-week period runs in either case. Now, calculating schedule loss of use is actually pretty straightforward. We take the percentage of body part schedule loss of use, and that turns into a number of weeks. We multiply it by the person's temporary total disability rate, which of course is two-thirds of their average weekly wage, and that equals a gross amount. So it's pretty simple. And if we can show that there's any apportionment or any prior, we can of course get a credit for that. So 
all the amount that we've paid in prior indemnity is subtracted from their overall scheduled loss of use award. So let's look at a sample calculation. Imagine injury to the left knee where they have a pretty high average weekly wage of $1,050 a week, which gives rise to a temporary disability rate of $700 per week. This would equate to 25% schedule loss of use of the left leg. Let's Again, either that's stipulated or judged. That equates to 72 weeks of compensation. You simply take their temporary total disability rate, you multiply it uh, by the number of weeks of compensation, and that's where you derive their gross award. Very simple, very straightforward. Now remember, in this jurisdiction, one of the ways you can reduce your exposure is if there was some apportionment to a prior disability or prior condition. So imagine if they had a prior injury to the same leg for a uh, significant amount of uh, apportionment, uh, that would be served to reduce our award, and that would be done in today's dollars. So that's a very significant offset and something worth doing. Now, let's say you don't have an injury to a simple body part, like a knee, hand, finger, foot, toe, eye, or ear. Those injuries to body parts that were not contemplated by the scheduled loss of use are compensated by way of a second system. And the second system in New York is called loss of wage earning capacity. To determine award in a loss of wage earning capacity case, the judge is supposed to determine first the amount of impairment this person has, so the rate uh, that, which will come out to be the, the rate of compensation uh, percentage, and then they're supposed to multiply it by a capped number of weeks. And the capped number of weeks come from a chart, which is again um, published in that impairment guideline, which I put in today's notes, and which is also available on the Workers' Compensation Board's website. When you look at the number of capped weeks, it's a pretty remarkable chart. Um, it goes up to 99% of disability, but what to me is remarkable is that between zero and 15% of disability, so very low amount of disability, the claimant is receiving 225 weeks of compensation. Even if the claimant has the minimum rate of compensation of $150 a week, you can see that 100, uh, 1% of disability has a pretty sizable award associated with it. What's also unique when you take a look at this capped weeks chart is that there are so many weeks down at the bottom end of the chart. So for the least amount of disability, we're really compensating people uh, very highly. And in fact, as you go up the chart, they're getting 25 weeks of compensation um, for each additional band of impairment as found on the chart. But as you go up on the chart, they're getting less weeks of compensation, which means if you were to uh, take this chart and you were to um, you were to take the chart and um, map it out. And here's the chart mapped out as a bar graph. You'd see this is a relatively flat compensation scheme. And what's also remarkable about the compensation scheme for loss of wage earning capacity in New York is that it's really weighted towards the bottom. Uh, the least disabled people under the workers' compensation system in New York get the highest proportion of weeks and compensation. So it's pretty remarkable, and it's pretty remarkably bad for employers. Uh, if you do this as a comparison state, because I just think it's fun to look at it at a comparison state. You know, we have a pretty big New Jersey practice here. Here's New Jersey's workers' compensation chart uh, for loss of wage earning capacity awards or permanent partial disability awards in that state um, in way of comparison. A 1% disability in New Jersey is not worth 225 weeks of compensation. It is worth six weeks of compensation or approximately $1,300 at current rates. So 
this is a lot uh, different than what we have in New York, which is this crazy flat chart. It just means that a little bit of disability um, found on the loss of wage earning capacity uh, chart is going to be worth a lot of money. So that's something to be mindful of. Now, scheduled sites can also be compensated by way of loss of wage earning capacity if the injury to the extremity exceeds a 50% scheduled loss of use. And of course, all the sites that are not covered by the scheduled loss of use chart, uh, which would be things like the neck, the back, the head, psychiatric disorders, neurologic disorders, et cetera, those are all compensated according to the, under the loss of wage earning capacity scheme. Loss of wage earning capacity is supposed to take into account the following items, and there's three of them. First is the person's medical impairment. The second is the person's functional ability or loss, and the third is vocational factors. And so the litigation path for a loss of wage earning capacity case is a little more convoluted because the judge is supposed to take um, get or, or process more information, and that additional information is functional ability and vocation. Now, the same rules about maximum medical improvement still apply. But the way the judge or the doctor is supposed to figure out the person's medical impairment is very different from that scheduled loss of use chart, which I showed you earlier. And that scheduled loss of use chart is really based on range of motion, grip strength, a couple special factors. It's, it's pretty straightforward. To determine the medical impairment for something like a soft tissue injury to someone's spine, the medical doctor in the New York system is supposed to apply these crazy charts and tables. And they're supposed to determine, using these charts and tables, uh, the claimant's overall medical impairment. They're supposed to classify them and then also give a severity ranking to each impairment. So here's an example um, for a soft tissue spine condition, uh, non-surgically treated. And it doesn't matter whether it's the cervical, the thoracic, or the lumbar spine. And I just want to spend just a second on this slide uh, because it really helps illustrate um, how the system works. Look at class one, okay, the, the classification one. This is where the person has a medically documented injury with no symptoms and no findings. And you can see here that the doctor who's reviewing that injury needs to give it a, a zero, essentially. No severity ranking, right? And the reason is because the person has no symptoms and no findings. So, yeah, you had a slip and fall at work, but you're in here in front of your own doctor saying, yes, but I have no problems related to that. Look at class two, which is kind of crazy to me. Class two is they have an injury. <clears throat> what is medically documented injury? It just means they came and told the doctor I slipped and fell at work. And then they have the following things. Persistence of symptoms, okay, so that's subjective. They're coming and saying something hurts. And then look at number two, no objective clinical findings consistent with any pathology. So again, this is someone who's coming to the doctor who's saying I have no, or the doctor's finding nothing to correlate to their complaints. And then the third thing is no correlative imaging findings. That means their MRI, CAT scan, X-ray, shows nothing. In that circumstance where the person has an injury at work and some complaints, subjective complaints again, but nothing objective and no clinical findings, the doctor is instructed to find a severity ranking of at least A. So they're going to give this person a severity ranking. Okay, And this is really where the system, in my opinion, goes off the rails. The person goes to the doctor and says, I've got some back pain, but again, they have a clean MRI, they have a clean CAT scan, clean X-ray, uh, no radiographic findings, and nothing on frank examination, right? There's no correlative clinical findings, nothing. The doctor is still supposed to find an overall impairment. 
And the system goes on from there, but I did want to spend just a minute on this slide sort of explaining how strange that is. Next, uh, to um, do that severity ranking, again, the doctor's supposed to use these special tables. It all looks very scientific, and they're supposed to come up with these ratings and rankings. When I teach this to um, the attorneys uh, that work here and to my clients, I always point everyone to the crosswalk, which is at the very end of that uh, impairment guideline uh, publication that the board puts out. And as you can see here, they've actually gone and given us a severity crosswalk so that we can turn those letters and numbers, right, impairment level one, severity ranking B, we can actually now turn that into a percentage. We can turn these things into percentage. And the way you can do that is because they've told you what a zero, one, two, three, four, five, and six is, six being totally disabled, and they've put all the impairment rankings and severity rankings, or sorry, I should just say severity rankings, here on this chart. So if someone has an A through a C or a B or a D of a lumbar, that is a 16.6% medical impairment. Uh, and as you can see, the highest you can be under the New York Workers' Compensation System for a simple soft tissue spinal condition, again, we're talking about a disc bulge, a impingement, a herniation, even an operated disc, uh, the highest it can be is 66.6% disability. Uh, so I'm going to tell everybody if there's one thing that you take away from this presentation when you're thinking about a loss of wagering capacity, uh, applying those guidelines in that chart to your disability, go to the back of those guidelines, use the severity crosswalk, and that will help you translate your doctor's opinion into a percentage, which we can then use to calculate the overall award. But we're not done here, right? The medical impairment is just one of three things the judge is supposed to consider. The judge is also supposed to consider the person's functional ability. Can the person perform their pre-accident duties? We have to know a little bit about those pre-accident duties. And the judge also has to consider um, the basic dynamics of the person's abilities. What are their general tolerances? What can they do in terms of bending, kneeling, lifting, grasping, standing, walking, jumping, running? What can they, what can they do? They're supposed to uh, take this into account. Um, Exertional ability is also something the judge should take into account. Uh, do they have a sedentary, light, medium, heavy, or very heavy exertional ability? And we've got to take the pre-accident job into account. Does a desk worker need to have exertional ability that's associated with very heavy work? And the answer is absolutely no. One of the most important questions that we will ask a claimant's physician on cross-examination is, you said this person has no ability to work. Is that true? And they'll say, yeah. And they'll say, okay. But is that of any job or just the job they were doing pre-accident? And they'll say, oh, that's from the pre-accident job. I mean, they could do a sitting job or they could do a standing job. They just can't do a job involving walking and lifting. All right, great. That's a huge concession. That's something that we've got to bring out on cross-examination. Next, the judge is supposed to consider vocational factors. And those vocational factors are the claimant's educational training, any skills they have that are transferable, their overall age, over 50, by the way, is considered advanced age for a vocational factor to be considered. Um, are they literate? Do they speak English? Are they numerate? And then, of course, any other considerations, which, for example, would be things like the person's pre-injury work. And obviously, the judge is supposed to presume that someone who's only done heavy labor job um, after an accident would be much less employable, much have a much lower wage earning capacity after the accident. So the judge is supposed to consider all these factors and then again, go back to this durational chart and come up with 
how many weeks of disability this claimant would be entitled to. And so let's do an example. And again, this chart is so important because it's going to give you the multiplier. Uh, the average weekly wage is going to be um, multiplied by the loss of wage earning capacity percentage, and then that's going to be multiplied by the number of weeks from the chart. So for someone with a, for example, 60% loss of wage earning capacity, which is a very common loss of wage earning capacity, by the way, who has an average weekly wage of $892 a week, well, that's average weekly wage for the purpose of calculating their weekly award amount is going to be reduced to 60% of that. So the average weekly wage times two-thirds, that gives you your temp total rate, times 0.6. So their award amount would be for $356.94. And then you go to the chart and you get the number of weeks off the chart and multiply that by 350 weeks. And so that disability would be entitle them to a loss of wage earning capacity award of $124,929. Okay, so it's you've got to take all of those, again, physical impairment or medical impairment, functional ability, wage earning, uh, wage or vocational factors, add them all together, and that's how you come up with that loss of wage earning capacity award. Settlements, settlements, settlements. Uh, let's talk about some lingos. Um, uh, I always tell this to my attorneys, like we make settlement offers, adversaries make demands. It's one of the most annoying things when people start to flip that around. Um, when we're discounting settlements, right, because even when I price a case under a scheduled loss of use, or even when I price a case under a loss of wage earning capacity, I'm coming up with the overall exposure analysis. I always want to think about how do I discount that? And I'm always thinking, by the way, in terms of how do I turn this into a Section 32, or what's the right Section 32 amount to offer the claimant? It's particularly important where the claimant no longer works for us. So we always want to consider the litigation risk, like how good is their case? Do I have great defenses? Do I have amazing videotape that shows them jumping on a trampoline when they claim all they can do is lay in a bed and drink beer and watch junk, uh, Judge Judy all day? Um, I always want to consider the value of right now money to the claimant. Everybody would rather have lump sum money now rather than, you know, drib and drab $356 paid over 350 weeks to go back to our last example. I also say we should not use the discount tables that are published by the Workers' Compensation Board. Those are not favorable to us. And the last thing when we're discounting, I always say, let's consider indemnity onlys. Um, I've discovered, and again, I'm not a big fan of indemnity onlys for a lot of reasons, but what I've discovered in this jurisdiction, I've been doing this for 23 years, is that once you shut down money, the medical treatment tends to go away. Uh, they were using the medical treatment as a way to try to get money. They're using medical treatment as a way to try to extend their temporary disability and stay out of work for longer and longer and longer and longer. And so what we know is that if you shut down the money, the um, going and getting more nonsense medical uh, treatment generally goes away. And so for all of those reasons, I would suggest to you uh, that indemnity-only settlement in this jurisdiction, um, I don't have much problems with it. In fact, I often recommend we do that as a way of closing cases. Um, I believe your defense counsel should absolutely not just be a calculator. I think there's nothing more frustrating than just being told, uh, here's what the numbers are, just give me the money. Like, we need to explain to our clients exactly why we came up with the exposure analysis we did. I also tell my attorneys, um, do not provide ranges of exposure. That's very frustrating, particularly where the exposure range is huge. Maybe when the case first comes in and it's like day one, and we don't have medicals yet, we don't have medical expert reports, we don't have any discovery done, 
Um, and we just don't know enough about the case to give you really an accurate exposure analysis, that then a range might be valid or necessary. But I think ranges as the case is progressing is really wrongheaded. We should be trying to pinpoint exactly what our goal resolution for this case is and not a range. So that's something I really, uh, really coach our attorneys away from. I also know that not all my clients want to settle, right? Sometimes there's really good reasons not to settle. Uh, maybe there are reasons where you want to push it to a trial. So let's think about that strategy. Um, and I hate it when uh, people say, well, what's the likelihood you're going to win if we go to trial? And they say 50%, you know? Uh, nope, that's not really giving the client enough actionable information for them to sort of figure out what to do next. So um, some practical takeaways from this overview is every single step in that scheduled loss of use or loss of wage earning determination or process, that's an opportunity for us to leverage for settlement. If we're waiting to the end of the case to start talking about settlement, or we're waiting until after we get our expert report to start, start talking about settlement, that's too long. We waited too long. We didn't do what we were supposed to do, right? We should be doing that a lot sooner. Um, I think we should be reevaluating the exposure value of a case constantly. And we should be doing things, by the way, as a defense counsel that lowers the exposure value as the case is going forward. Uh, we should be helping make that really clear. Um, here's why we're doing, here's why I'm taking this deposition. Here's why I'm going to court. Here's why I'm following that request for further action. It's to try to adjust or challenge that exposure value. Um, from my perspective, I'll tell you, I think it's very important for us to identify who are the important stakeholders so that we can start to figure out, okay, how much, who needs to be in on this decision um, as we get closer and closer to that settlement, who wants to be in that loop uh, so that people feel like they're really part of the process. All right, I'm about to turn it over to the Q&A section. So I'm hoping that there's lots of great questions that have been typed into me. Let me open up my question box over here. And... Let's see, I see uh, a question from a claimant, which I'm not gonna answer. Um, I don't see questions from anybody else. Hello, okay. Teresa says, Greg, uh, how do you stop a claimant from bringing in other body parts? Okay, great. This happens all the time. First, we have to be vigilant. Um, when we're defending a case, we wanna be vigilant and be checking um, EKs all the time to see if they're trying to do this. Also know the triggers for when they're gonna start trying to bring in body parts. It's usually when they're close to MRI, MMI, sorry. I see things in medical records and it'll, it'll be a doctor's note saying, um, uh, return to office at next visit, I'm expecting to release you, okay? All of a sudden they switch doctors and go to a new doctor. We need to be super vigilant about shutting that down and being on top of it. Um, one of the ways that you can do that is, of course, be monitoring um, your medical dashboard, right? Because uh, New York has the um, medical dashboard that's available and that's not available to us as defense counsel, but is available to you as the, um, um, uh, the adjuster or risk professional, where if they're trying to bring in a new body part, they have to submit a PAR into the system into the onboard system. It's called onboard limited release and it's the medical authorization system. So if you see a PAR come in for a new body part and your case is ready to settle or close to settlement or close to MMI, you're absolutely gonna wanna challenge that PAR. You're gonna wanna make sure you send them to a medical expert or get a, a records review and really challenge that new body part coming in. So the two ways are one, being vigilant about monitoring the case, knowing where it is in the litigation. I mean, that's when I wanna be hyper vigilant when I'm ready to settle a case, make sure they don't start bringing in new stuff. 
And then the second place is inside that PAR system, inside Onboard. You know, this is why um, we really need to be coordinated as we defend cases. If I'm about to settle a case and I've pushed this case forward and I've got my medical experts report, and then my risk professional approves a PAR for them to get a new body part treated that's not part of the established case, that's going to reset things and that's going to be a real challenge for us to fix. Okay. All right. Anna asked me the question, Greg, how is the psychological component measured as far as ELWIC when it's all subjective? What we can do to mitigate that exposure or how do we measure for settlement? Okay, so great question. And the disability duration guidelines do include um, some uh, guidelines for evaluating psychiatric disability, neurologic disability, all sort, all, it's all covered in there. Again, take a look at it. It's like 145 pages of um, how they evaluate this stuff. But the real answer, and particularly for, problem, for uh, things that, in my opinion, are quite subjective, Things like psychiatric illness are very subjective. For example, there is no blood test for depression. There's no blood test for anxiety. It doesn't show up on an MRI or a nerve conduction velocity test. These are really, and the answer is A, um, we're going to cross-examine the treating physician who is making these diagnoses. Um, and we have developed over many, many years very effective cross-examinations. And the truth of it is, that most people who have uh, depressive disorder conditions, they're medicated and it does not become a barrier to them being productive. And the second thing we do is test those claims. Uh, we'll send them to our own medical expert and our medical expert will compare the claimant's subjective complaints um, to what's in the medical treatment guidelines and provide both a diagnosis and an impairment rating. Again, particularly the more subjective the complaint, the more generally variance there is between what their doctor says and what our doctor says in terms of the person's overall impairment. So I hope that's helpful to you. Um, Lisa says, Greg, can someone make a scheduled loss of use claim if they haven't returned to work and have no plans to return to work? Uh, should we move to classification? So I'll, I'll just stop for just one second and say, if the person has no plans to return to work, um, maybe you're not paying anything anymore, right? Because maybe they voluntarily withdrawn from the labor market, in which case you would never be thinking about a classification or a loss of wage earning capacity because they're no longer part of the labor market. They've retired, they've moved on, they've, you know, they're on social security somewhere. So maybe that's one answer. Um, can you force someone to make a schedule loss of use claim if they haven't returned to work um, and have no plans? Well, no, but you can stipulate to one. I mean, if you have uh, the opinion that, hey, they have an 8 or 12 or 16% scheduled loss of use of their right shoulder, uh, there's nothing that stops you of presenting them with a, here's a, a proposed stipulation, do you want to just agree to this, right? It might be all the money you've already paid. It might be a no money moving and you just want to get the case closed. That's fine too. And the last thing you can do is you can go to the judge. You can file an RFA and say, judge, uh, we think this case is ready for scheduled loss of use. Can you set it down? the judge will direct them to go out and get their own permanency evaluation, their own medical impairment evaluation, and then the judge will set the matter down for a, a trial on that, on that topic. And again, in that trial, you can just go and say, I stipulate to whatever the, their doctor found and just at least get the rating and get the case closed. So uh, that's something you could try. All right, I'm looking to see if there's any more questions. So far, nothing else is popping up. Um, this has been a long webinar, but I hope it was very uh, educational for everyone and helpful. I do love the questions, so thank you for Teresa, Anna, and Lisa for asking me those questions. It does make this so much more fun when I have live questions coming in. Um, next month, we're going to be talking about all the stuff that messes up 
a settlement. So we're going to talk about things like risk transfer. We're going to talk about things about aggregate trust fund. Uh, we're going to talk about Medicare as secondary payer. All the stuff that once we get once we get the case to a settlement, but then we have to consider and straighten out uh, so that they don't come back and bite us. But thanks for joining us today, everybody. Have a great week. Uh, see you next month.